Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Conversations on Inares. I'm Joseph Orozco. I'm the co-director of the Inares Project for Alternative Futures at Oregon State University. Today, an episode on the 25th anniversary of the Institute for Anarchist Studies. During the last few months of the Trump presidency, the mainstream news media found itself having to deal with explaining the meaning of anarchism. In September 2020, the Department of Justice issued a memo which designated the cities of New York, Seattle, and Portland, Oregon as anarchist jurisdictions. This followed months of protests after the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. The Department of Justice threatened to extend the designation to any other cities that adopted policies to defund police departments. And this was a sign that the idea of police abolition was gathering more momentum. The internet was soon filled with memes that adopted the anarchist jurisdiction term, placing it over idyllic, idyllic scenes from nostalgic travel postcards. But it was clear that the old stereotype of the anarchist as a dangerous bomb-throwing figure from the early 20th century had returned to haunt a lot of political discourse. President Biden did rescind the DOJ memo in February 2021, but the fear of the anarchist protester continued to appear in the political rhetoric of politicians who were trying to regain political capital during the after that they had lost after the protests in 2020. So for instance, in April of 2021, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler tried to make a distinction between what he considered to be the good protesters at racial justice marches from the self-described anarchists, quote unquote, who are interested only in, quote, havoc. The Oregonian posted a guest response soon after this, and it tried to debunk this association. The response asserted, Anarchists have been a part of the Portland community for generations and live and work everywhere in the city. Some participate in militant street demonstrations. Some, often the same people, respond with material and emotional aid to those displaced by wildfires, suffering houselessness, or experiencing the physical and economic consequences of the pandemic. Anarchists organize to make workplaces more democratic, grow food cooperatively, teach children and young adults, and provide health care to the community. We are your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, and your caregivers. The editorial continued, Mayor Wheeler and the editorial board's focus on the actions of militants in the streets is a distraction from talking about the social, economic, and political conditions that give rise to demonstrations in the first place. We urgently need to talk about why the Portland police can murder people at will and then viciously beat, shoot, and attack those who confront this behavior. White supremacy and the institutions and actors who uphold it, not protest against these things, are what tear apart and create havoc in the Portland community." Close quote. The author of that piece was Paul Messersmith Glavin. And for over two yet decades, Paul worked as a board member of the Institute for Anarchist Studies, an organization dedicated to clarifying, producing, and distributing anarchist ideas. 2021 marks the 25th anniversary of the IAS. Today, the IAS operates as a nonprofit organization that funds artists, writers, and organizers to produce materials that explore anarchism as a social and political ideal. So in this episode, we sat down with two people who are central to the mission of IAS to find out how this group came about and how it operates to promote anarchism as a viable political and social vision. Chuck Morse founded the Institute for Anarchist Studies in 1996. His goal was to establish an anarchist think tank, an intellectual hub in which anarchist analyses of the world would be produced and disseminated. Chuck is a movement author, writing extensively about his formative experiences at the Institute for Social Ecology with Murray Bookchin. He has, helped, he has translated uh, the classic biography of Buenaventura Duruti, Duruti and the Spanish Revolution from AK Press in 2007. He also translated Paradoxes of Utopia, Anarchist Culture and Politics in Buenos Aires, 1889 to 1910, published by AK Press in 2010. Our second guest is also uh, a member of uh, IAS. She is Laura Messersmith-Glavin. 
Laura is an activist organizer, and she's a current board member of the Institute for Anarchist Studies, but she's been with the organization for over 10 years now and has helped to edit some very important collections, including Angels with Dirty Faces by Walida Yumarisha and Life During Wartime, Resisting Counterinsurgency. She regularly teaches reading and writing classes at a community college in Portland, Oregon. Her forthcoming book is Spirit Things, a collection of reflections on growing up in Alaska. So let's turn now to Chuck and Laura on the 25th anniversary of the Institute for Anarchist Studies. So we're here now with uh, Chuck Morse and uh, Laura Messersmith-Glavin. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Thank you very much for spending some time with us and being on the program. We really appreciate it. Uh, uh, And this is the first time for both of you on on the the program. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. It's nice to be here. So I wanted to to begin this discussion about uh, the Institute for Anarchist Studies with both of you sort of sharing a little bit about the process of you coming to think of yourself as uh, an anarchist. What, what sort of brought anarchism uh, as, a, as a, a vision, a philosophy, a way of life, uh, a way of organizing? How did this come to appeal to you? Um, Chuck, let's begin with you and then we can talk with Laura. Sure. So for me, it was really all about punk rock. Um, I was born in uh, the late 60, 1969, and I grew up in upstate New York in an upper middle class family um, in an environment that was defined by the flight of white people from um, the urban core that took place in the 60s. And uh, I lived in a big house with a big yard, and I went to a private school, and really by any measure, um, my family was very comfortable. Um, just in a world historical perspective, we had really unprecedented um, degrees of material comfort. But uh, my family was not particularly happy. Um, my dad um, was an alcoholic, and my mother was burdened by her own traumas, particularly sexual traumas that she had experienced um, as a child. And what that meant for me as a kid coming up is that I was sort of beset with um, the paradox of of being really comfortable materially, but uh, spiritually and psychologically bereft and disconnected. And uh, punk rock really answered that question um, for me about how to respond to that, help me understand how to respond to that by asserting that you should burn it all down. And uh, that sounded good to me. So I signed up with that. Um, program at an early age, and anarchism um, gave me a way to make the um, punk impulses more coherent and political. And that's uh, been, you know, now 40 years of um, downward mobility since then, and um, I'm still pretty happy about it. But uh, that's how it worked for me. Laura, what about you? Um, you know, it's funny, I, I feel like I've heard from a lot of my comrades, like the importance that punk culture played in their radicalization and how it kind of gave them a home and, and a sense of identity. Um, and then there were like these, you know, intellectual pieces that came with that, that they put together over time. And I actually like had never heard of punk rock until I was in college. Um, it was not a part of my upbringing at all. Um, I grew up in a really unusual kind of working class situation where like half the year my family was on a fishing boat in Alaska and the other half of the year we lived in a couple of places for a while it was southern Indiana and then it was in very rural eastern Oregon so my environments were extremely rural um, and working class the and very very white for the most part although in Alaska there was also um, you know most of the villages that we would spend time in if we were if we were on the on the shore were native villages. And so we were a large, you know, there was a lot of like interaction with Aleut communities um, and the Aleutic in particular off Kodiak Island were um, the folks that I spent the most time with. Um, but so for me, 
there was a just I, I grew up in an incredibly conservative environments in general. So when I was in Oregon or in Indiana, those communities tended to be very Christian, very conservative, you know, and as like a young queer person, there was a lot of problems that came with that. Like my first kind of initiation into politics was with ballot measure nine, which was here in Oregon. Um, that was the uh, like anti-gay uh, law that was trying to be passed. It wasn't just like an anti-gay marriage, like that wasn't even on the table. It was more like if you were gay, your kids in school had to receive counseling and it was like listed as bad and amoral and sick and wrong. And like all of these things, it was like a push to like really um, like further stigmatize and also like outlaw in some cases, homosexuality and, and queerness as an identity. And so um, that was like my first real like, wow, so people actually want to do this to people like me and people that I care about. And um, it was like my first time doing organizing work. I was too young to vote. And so I spent a lot of time just trying to talk to people. And so that was the first time that I got involved in organizing. But um, it was also kind of the way that I started to really identify as a freak, right? And so like in, in rural communities, like we didn't have punks, but we definitely had freaks and like freak culture and really rural conservative spaces is pretty wild. Um, but we didn't have like a, we didn't have a political program, you know, we didn't have an analysis of anything, just like a real sense of otherness for sure. Um, and it wasn't actually until much, much later when I, um, when I was in college, I was exposed to a lot of ideas, but I didn't really assimilate them well. Um, but after college, I went to Morocco for a couple of years, um, just on an art project. I just left basically. Um, and, and it wasn't until I was really outside the bubble that is like the American media machine that I started to encounter ideas that helped me ask the kinds of questions that led me towards anarchism in general. Like every single person that I met on the street, like, you know, nine-year-old street urchins in Morocco have like a more solid analysis of American foreign policy than most adults that I know in the U.S., right? And so um, I spent a lot of time listening and a lot of time um, becoming further and further disturbed and like having to ask some really hard questions. So it wasn't until I returned back to the States after that and eventually went to graduate school um, and found some anarchist mentors in school that I started to kind of put pieces together in a way that would help me make sense of all of both the social and the economic inequalities that were really clear around me, I guess. Well, so both of you are sort of talking about um... Um, anarchism as a as a kind of way of life that appealed to you uh, in sort of in in rebellion to a lot of things that were going on in your upbringing and and childhoods and, and young adulthoods. I, I wonder if you might say a little bit about what was it about like how you understand anarchism and what was it that appealed to you at those moments in which you were both searching for some kind of answers to the questions that you had grown up experiencing. Um, Laura, do you have a sense of what it was that anarchism spoke to you about? Yeah, I mean, to be really clear, though, I think my understanding of anarchism has taken a long time to develop and is still in the process of developing. So the things that drew me to it initially are not what I gravitate towards now. I think initially I was coming from a place of pure individualism. You know, I was raised with a libertarian spirit, I think being uh, you know, as part of a fishing fleet, like we sort of fancied ourselves pirates on a certain level, you know, and there was a lot of like outlaw action in general that felt um, like if you could get away with it, then you should do it. Right. Um, and I was kind of raised with a little bit of that ethos as well. And so like what drew me initially was really the sense of individualism. Like nobody really can tell you what else to do when it comes down to it. And I don't feel that way at all now. Right. Like I, I have a much different understanding of anarchism as like a social contract and a way of understanding relationships between people. Um, and in fact, I think that my, that my definition of anarchism now is very much more oriented towards processes and towards means of relation, as opposed to say some kind of like a utopian ideal that I'm hoping we're all gonna march towards. I don't really have that. What I have instead is like a, a, a pretty dedicated belief and the ways in which I hope that people can learn to relate to one another and that the different kinds of social systems will be built out of those processes and those commitments, I think. 
so more sort of like a, an anarchist ethic or ethos uh, 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 rather than sort of like a political vision or a blueprint of the perfect society. Exactly. And for sure, like certainly I believe in strategy and I believe in um, like much of the theory that that shapes anarchist thought, you know, and I think it's all very important. And I think that the way that I understand anarchism at its core and what what motivates me about it now has more to do with those sets of relationships um, and those commitments as opposed to like there being this one way in which we all need to relate to each other or this one kind of vision, I think. Yeah. But that's certainly not how I got into it. That's not what drew me initially. What about you, Chuck? What was it about anarchism that spoke to you as a uh, kind of political project that uh, inspired you when you were a young person searching for something to orient your life? Well, I would say that I, in my experience, I think parallels Lars to a great extent. Um, you know, as a teenager getting into it, I was really attracted to the idea that nobody could tell you what to do, you know, the thought that was awesome, you know, when you're 13 years old <laughs> and arguing with your parents, you know, not only are you, can you, you know, tell them that you're not going to listen to them, but there's a reason why you're not going to listen to them. So that was, you know, work for me then. Um, but my relationship to it has evolved over time. And it's, you know, now been, you know, an anchor around which I've developed my life in various ways for nearly 40 years. And I think that, um, what it's provided for me over the long haul is the ability to um, pose questions, so, sort of like the, the questions I think that, that Laura mentioned is about the re relationship between, you know, that pose questions about the paradoxes that tend to make up the anarchist tradition. On the one hand, our impulses towards individual liberty and the sort of libertarianism. And on the other hand, there's an emphasis on collective structures and processes that can be more egalitarian. And, it's provided me a vocabulary in which I can, you know, think through and relate to those questions. And um, that's been meaningful to me over the years. It's um, given me more than it has taken from me. So I've stuck with it. Well, let's talk a little bit about how that has, you know, helped you, how it's stuck with you in some ways, right? Uh, both of you have been for many years involved with the Institute for Anarchist Studies. Chuck, you founded this organization in 1996. Um, I wanted to ask uh, you, Chuck, about the motivations for starting this particular group um, and your original vision for what the IAS was. And I wanna situate it though in, in the kind of moment in history in which you did this, right? So this was 1996, um, this was, just a couple of years out from the Zapatista rebellion in Mexico. And I know that you have uh, a lot of uh, scholarship and research in Latin American sort of social movements. Um, this was also a, a moment of the fervent of the global justice movement that took off around uh, those years with the launch of the World Social Forum. So there's a lot of sort of grassroots buzzing about, globally speaking, about finding uh, alternative futures, uh, new ways of life. But in the United States, right, sort of electoral politics were in a different kind of place. It was the, uh, you know, the few years into the uh, presidency of Bill Clinton and with the, those sort of neoliberal policies of the new Democrats who were gutting social welfare programs and setting up laws for, you know, massive uh, incarceration, particularly of folks of color, right? So there's a lot of fervent politically going on. And this is the moment in which you decide to create this organization uh, for the dissemination of anarchist ideas. Um, what was your original vision for the IAS? Uh, what were you hoping that you would be able to do in the context of all of those kinds of events and changes going on politically in the world? Yeah, it's a great question and a great context. Um, obviously, there were a lot of different impulses um, and aspirations going on, but I'll mention uh, three things that um, strike me now as I, I reflect back on it as most important. Um, one thing that we wanted to do was create um, uh, what was then known as a think tank. Um, think tanks back in the 90s were an important topic of discussion because they have played a role in the resurgence of the right wing at the time. Um, there was the Republican, what they called the Republican Revolution at the time. And this had been challenged from the right, um, Bill Clinton's presidency. 
And what these think tanks did is they provided a mechanism to link intellectuals um, to popular movements um, on the right. Um, and they did it by funding research, organizing conferences, publishing things, and by promoting ideas among their, um, their core, their activist core. So um, at this time, there had been a real resurgence of anarchist activity and people were turning to anarchism in new ways, but it, it wasn't really clear um, what was gonna happen. It wasn't clear how it was going to evolve. Um, and so this was a way to, um, to try to press it um, to take a certain direction. Um, grants, it was, it was primarily a grant giving organization and the grants allowed us to push it in a certain direction by, um, you know, we could identify a scholar, give him or her a grant and that would help this person produce their work. And um, also by giving a grant award, it would indicate our enthusiasm for, for their work. So it was a way of pushing um, the movement in a certain direction. Uh, the, the other thing that um, was going on is that it was an effort to challenge and politicize the production of um, anarchist intellectual work. Um, historically, you know, anarchist intellectual work has been produced by the elites. You know, Kropotkin was a prince. And um, in the middle of the 20th century, um, the most prominent anarchist thinkers were um, pri privileged white men, many of whom came from working class backgrounds, but were privileged in a global scale. And we believe that it was possible and important to challenge the way anarchist intellectual work is produced and not just allow it to continue to um, function in a certain social context, but change that by giving grants that would help us bring people into the process of the production of anarchist ideas who would have been otherwise excluded from that process because of their um, economic conditions. And of course, these economic conditions tend to coincide with um, racial and gender hierarchies. So is these grants provided a way to you know, challenge a constellation of issues. And the, I'll just mention that the third thing is that um, it was a polemic, um, it was a polemical act within the context of the anarchist scene. Um, there, like I said, there was a real resurgence going on, um, but people held really conflicting ideas about what anarchism could or should be. And some of these ideas were really friggin' dumb. Um, there was a deep strain of anti-intellectualism running through the anarchist scene um, that took essentially two forms. There was a, sort of a primitivist current that wanted, um, you know, that argued that human beings should abandon their ability to think abstractly and thus sort of become like amoeba and just, you know, float through the world without being encumbered by rational thought or, or moral constraints. And there was also uh, an individualist current, um, which I had frankly been into as a teenager. You know, I was, it was a period of my own juvenilia because I was a juvenile. Um, and this, this situation, quasi-situations perspective, um, you know, advocated for, a, it was, it saw anarchism really as a bridge to little insurrectionary circuses in which people would break free of all constraints and you know, they love riots and throwing rocks at cops and their social vision was essentially embodied in a dumpster fire. So we wanted to polemicize against those things and, and did so by forming an institution, um, thus in, indicating that inst being bound to institutions um, could be productive and emancipatory, and also by embracing ideas um, and, and thus challenging the anti-intellectualism. So those were three impulses that were, were going on at the time um, for me. And that shaped the project. We're very specific to that time. And so you were with IAS until when? Until 2005. 2005. What, what would you consider to be the, the highlights of uh, the Institute's work in the time that you were involved with it? Quitting. Um, <laughs> I, 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 say, I say that and I don't mean to sound bitter, but it, I am not bitter. And it may sound a little ridiculous, but um, I'll just mention a little bit about how this process unfolded and then it'll, I think, make sense. Um, so I had been talking about building the Institute for Anarchist Studies for several years before it was actually founded in 1996. And I would talk about it with friends and comrades in various settings. And uh, at a certain point, um, Dan Choderkoff, who found, Jim Choderkoff, who founded the Institute for Social Ecology with Murray Bookchin, 
um, said to me, said, okay, so what's happening with this organization? When are you going to start it? What's the deal? And I, when he said that, I was just like, fuck, you know, I realized that I needed to start it or else risk sounding like a total blowhard. And I did not want to sound like a total blowhard. And so I, I threw myself into it. Um, and as you can imagine, um, you know, it, it was hard. Uh, it was really hard. Um, as I threw myself into the organization, I, I had to develop a series of tasks that I, uh, skills, I mean, to say that I did not have um, building that databases and Microsoft Access, fundraising, incorporating a nonprofit with the state of New York. We were in New York at the time, uh, managing difficult personalities and just, you know, dealing with all the details um, that come from having a really hard job. And it also required that I, I gave up my own intellectual work. Um, I had been in a graduate program for philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York City. And I had to give that up um, in order to build the IAS um, in order to do it. There just wasn't time. And I, I was lucky because my class background enabled me to do this for years. It was the only way I could have done it. Um, it was the only, only way that I could do it. But it was hard and the rewards um, were few and far between. I, I never drew a salary. Um, I never got a promotion. I never got a little gold sticker. Um, you know, there were very few rewards for me. So when I quit, when I realized that I could leave and that it, it could carry on on its own as it had for the last 11 years, um, 16 years, I mean to say, um, I was like, that's great, you know, awesome. I'm out of here. I'm eager to, I felt proud and I was eager to do other things. So that was a high point for me. Um, I believe that it should be built, um, but I was glad that that had occurred and I was eager to do other things. And I'll just mention another thing is that, um, you know, there had, had, had never been an anarchist organization of this sort before. Um, there had never been uh, an, an anarchist grant giving organization. And although there have been anarchist propaganda groups over the years, there's never been an organization dedicated to cultivating and developing anarchist ideas per se. So it was a novel project and uh, building it with people was really frigging awesome. It was really awesome. Um, although I was individual one in this process, immediately other people got involved, including somebody who is still Laura's husband. Forgive me if that's disclosing more than you want. Bleep that if you want to bleep that. Uh, but uh, Paul Glavin, um, who, Mr. Smith, who's um, one guy who got involved then is now still involved. And so there was immediately, immediately it went from me to us. And um, we worked really, really hard together um, and it wasn't clear that we could pull it off. It was a totally novel organization. Um, donors gave generously. Um, people joined the board of directors. Uh, we, a team of us, put out publications. And uh, that was really an awesome experience. Um, I, I think, you know, it wasn't clear that we could build it. We did build it in a way that I think was inclusive and participatory. And I, I think, and this was important to us, reflected um, the anarchist convictions that conviction that um, and our ends are also our means. So that was great. I, you know, I, as eager as I was to move on when I had the chance to do so, I, I think back on it really fondly. So Laura, I wanna, I wanna ask you, um, uh, when did you come on uh, board with IAS? Um, I think that I did not officially join the board until maybe 2010. I can't quite remember. I should have looked it up beforehand, but I was actually involved with the IAS for a couple of years before that. I was um, a member of the editorial collective for the House Journal, which is Perspectives on Anarchist Theory. So I worked with like that collective as kind of an offshoot of the organization before I joined the board. Okay, good. So, so um, about 11 years now then, correct? Is that correct? At least, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, let me ask you both then this kind of question uh, um, about this particular time period. Um, so people have been arguing that um, anarchist forms of tactics, strategies, and vision were really important in terms of the organizing that took place in 1999 uh, uh, for the protests against the WTO in Seattle, the battle in Seattle, uh, that there were a lot of, this was a time in which we saw large scale sort of 
uh, incidents of people utilizing anarchist-inspired strategies, uh, affinity groups, spokes, spokes wheels, and things of sorts. And then others are pointing out how anarchist organizers uh, and anarchist intellectuals were critical uh, in the Occupy Wall Street mobilization in 2011, folks notably like David Graeber. Um, so both of you now have been involved with IAS, uh, you know, around this time period, um, or been thinking about the, these kinds of developments. How would you assess the importance of anarchist ideas in U.S. social movements from about 1996 when IAS got started to about 2011 with the beginning of Occupy Wall Street? Um, was is this a high point? Do you think in terms of anarchist? organizing and ideas in the United States? Did, did IAS have any role in supporting any of these kinds of mobilizations? Uh, should I go? Go for it. So uh, it's an, I think it's an excellent question. And I think it's important to, to, to remember how, or to recognize at least, how radical the resurgence of anarchism has been in the last 25 or 40 years or so. Um, when I got involved in um, 1982, as a 13-year-old, there was very, very little going on. Um, there were you know, maybe three or four anarchist books published annually. Um, there were two or three publications and almost zero organizing going on. Um, basically, what was going on was just a little ember that had continued from the new left that somehow continued to burn. Um, but there was almost nothing going on. And uh, I'll remember that, you know, my, I'll never forget hearing my mother explain to one of her friends that her son's an anarchist and she was kind of amused by this, bemused by the fact and thought it, you know, funny to share. And her friend said, after she, my mother told her friend this, her friend responded by saying, yeah, you know, kids get drawn to the craziest things, but I've always been fascinated by Anabaptists. And it just, <laughs> it just stuck with me because and made me realize that not only is anarchism not a threat, people can't even fucking make the distinction between anarchism and anabaptism. Now that's very different. You know, now there are, you know, multiple institutions, there are publishers, there are collectives, there's real serious organizing, and there are people like the three of us who have, you know, developed their own biographies um, around anarchism um, in one way or another for years and years. So that's, I think, a remarkable um, development in the long history of this doctrine. Um, so I just want to put that in context because it's easy for people who you know, weren't around back then. It, it's hard, difficult to, I think, remember how marginal it, it, the, the scene was at the time. Um, with respect to um, Occupy Wall Street and the Battle of Seattle, there's no question that the IES played a role in cultivating the radical sensibilities that occurred then. And also, uh, very concretely, um, people involved with the IES were involved in both um, both moments in the IS has funded works um, that, that study them and publish various essays um, and perhaps books by various publications that have made tried to make sense of those those moments. Um, I, I, I'm pretty certain that though that Occupy Wall Street, I'm certain that Occupy Wall Street and the Battle of Seattle would have occurred without the IS, but I'm also certain that um, the IS enriched them and helped make them more radical. You know, uh, Occupy Wall Street like broke while the IAS was in a meeting in New York City. Um, and so this is a really important moment in our history as an organization because the board at the time like walked down to Zuccotti Park and was looking around trying to like check out like what's going on. And this was the first time that um, like in general, the organization has had an attitude of trying to like remain on the realm of theory and has not uh, until pretty recently tried to respond to exact moments, right? And to act as, as an intervention in moments. Like for instance, we've had a policy of not um, offering like organizational support to particular actions or marches, for instance, right? Like we just haven't done that in the past, um, but when Occupy Wall Street broke, um, like you know, the board like marched down to the park and said, "There has to be a way that we can intervene positively in this. Like, there has to be a way that we can like like use our work to be a part of this moment in a concrete fashion." And so that's where the Lexicon series came from. So we saw all of a sudden, like all over 
the country, you know, camps were breaking out left and right. And people were suddenly in this moment trying to find a common vocabulary for how to talk about this moment of insurgence that we were experiencing. And, you know, it was happening around the world. And one of the things is when you have a, a, a radical learning curve that is so steep, right? You've got like tons of people that they're drawn by maybe um, just like a sense of like something, right? An urge. And they may not even know exactly why they're there or exactly like, like how it fits into their like greater political landscape or, or what they want to do strategically in this moment, right? They just, they feel that urge. And so we thought that a way that we could intervene in a concrete and positive fashion would be to help people develop a common language, right? And so we could hear people throwing around terminology like anarchism, right? Like, what does it fucking mean, right? Is everybody using that word in the same way? And so we came up with a list of basic terms, right, for the lexicon. So it's like, what is power, what is gender? What is anarchism? What is colonialism, right? And the idea was if we can somehow get folks at least to share vocabulary in a way, then we might start to build some common assumptions and about how these ideas can be useful in building and continuing and growing these movements, right? Rather than it being like, it had kind of a Tower of Babel quality to it, you know, at first where like lots and lots of different ideas and everybody kind of trying to shout over each other. Um, and we felt like the more common language that we have, then like the better able we're all going to be able to communicate. And I think that 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 did happen. And that's one piece of feedback that we continue to receive, like from people who've never heard of our work otherwise or who don't read perspectives or whatever. A lot of people will say, oh, yeah. I've had a lexicon in my bathroom for the last eight years or whatever, you know, like you guys did that. That's so cool. Right. And so I feel like they actually got into the world and like did some work that helped people direct their ideas, you know, which is exciting. So the lexicon series, that was like a series of pamphlets that uh, were published and that you all have like there's it's on the website, right, that people could download for themselves to be able to have it to distribute. Yeah, if you go to the website, which is anarchiststudies.org, um, one of the tabs says lexicon, and you can download them in pamphlet form, and you can print them out, you can disseminate them. We also um, have the rights from all the authors for the audio version, and so we have recordings of them read by um, people from around the world. Cool. Well, we'll link to those uh, definitely uh, for folks to be able to link uh, and, and go to. So, so part, if I understand correctly, so part of the idea was that um, to create a sort of um, an intellectual, theoretical uh, foundation for folks involved in various kinds of anarchist praxis, both in the Battle in Seattle and in Occupy Wall Street, by providing study and 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 vocabulary, con conceptual language to be able to do work. Um, so I, I, I have a question about uh, in terms of how, if at all, the, the mission of IAS has changed over time. So Chuck, you said you left in 2005. Laura, you came in in 2011. Um, has, Laura, in your view, has the mission of IAS changed at all or altered in any way uh, since you've come on or from what you've seen from the beginning of the, the beginning of IAS? Um, yeah, almost completely in some ways, right? I mean, there's still that essential mission of wanting to expand um, and, and challenge like the, the current trends inside of anarchism to try to build a much more robust theory um, and to like to identify and fill in the gaps, the questions that we haven't answered yet, you know, to think about ways to make it more practical, more um, able to be implemented, like more likely to create either rupture or intervention in positive ways, right? Um, so all of that is still there. And there's been a real shift in the way that we want to go about that work, right? So, um, you know, it used to be largely a grant giving organization like Chuck has talked about, you know, and also there was a fair amount of work sponsoring theory tracks at conferences. I know that some former board members, John Petrovato and Cindy Milstein spent a lot of time with the RAT conference, the Rethinking the Anarchist Tradition, for instance. Um, and so while we do a little bit of less, a little bit less of that now, um, particularly, you know, in the kind of post pandemic world, we haven't been to a lot of conferences in the last couple of years. But we have ex like expanded 
maybe tenfold what we produce in terms of um, like written word and and other kinds of media now is what we're sort of we're starting to branch into. So in 2010, 2011 is when we well, 2010, we started doing a book series. Right. So in conjunction with AK Press, we started publishing the Anarchist Interventions book series. I mean, then that has expanded into something that also includes what we call anarchist imaginations, which has space for things like fiction and poetry. Um, and, you know, beyond that, now we're looking to, uh, instead of just sponsoring grants that produce the written word, we're also trying to meet people in like multimedia space. So we're funding podcasts, we're funding like multimedia installations, we're funding um, video work. You know, so we're trying to um, get away from maybe uh, that more academic foundation that we started with and get into more of a popular, I don't want to say pop cultural, right, but like trying to find a way to meet people who are seeking these ideas in whatever medium they're looking to find them, which right now tends to be largely driven by social media and is forms outside of just like paper pamphlets that you pick up at, you know, zine festivals, things like that. So sort of non-corporate pop culture. Non-corporate pop culture, right? Back to punk culture in a way. But, but you know, also I think though that these ideas, I, I think it's really important that these ideas be both accessible and important and speaking to the experiences of people who are not just part of like white punk scenes as well. So. Well, so this is a question for both of you. I wanna really gain some insight from you all about um, where we are today. So, um, you know, a lot has changed since 2011 with Occupy um, globally and particularly in the United States and especially here in Oregon, where IS is now uh, located. Um, the political landscape of the United States has really changed in, in so many really sort of uh, dramatic ways. Um, seen the rise prominently of just outright fascism uh alt-right social movements all across the country we've seen this also you know in different places in europe and especially here in in oregon right uh, some really dramatic scenery of street clashes going on between um protesters and um fascist groups and a lot of that in the last years of the trump administration right led uh, uh, Trump to refer to Portland and Seattle and New York City as anarchist jurisdictions, and he was seeking to make that a, a legal term for the Department of Justice. Um, so I wanted to ask you both, how do you see the anarchist scene reacting to this kind of attention, this, uh, this kind of really high place negative attention in the United States? Um, you know, of course, at the beginning of the 20th century, anarchism was the big boogeyman that, you know, the federal government was prohibiting uh, immigrants from coming to the United States if they were anarchists. And then, but as you point out, Chuck, you know, the, the anarchism as a, as a scene was really marginal in the 1980s, but as we've been talking about, has been growing. And again, now it's gotten this kind of really uh, sort of high profile negative attention. And, and there's a lot of violence associated uh, with folks reacting to, uh, you know, what they perceive as anarchist protesters in, in places like Oregon. Um, how do you think this climate has affected the dissemination of anarchist ideas? Laura, do you have a sense? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually kind of want to reframe that a little bit. Like, I don't think that the rise of fascism in the, in the Trump period and beyond has come as a surprise to anyone. I don't think that it was like out of the blue in any sense. I feel like this is something that a lot of, of you know, theorists and writers and just general observers on the left have been warning against for quite some time. So it's not like it's taken people unawares. I think there's been a tremendous amount of ongoing organizing, anti-fascist organizing, um, you know, for a very long time that has continued to be, um, you know, essential in this period. But at the same time, I mean, other things have been going on at this, you know, simultaneously, right? So for instance, following the murder of George Floyd, there's been the huge um, like uprising that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. And inside the wake of that, I think this idea of anarchism has also become normalized in a really interesting way. So even though it has become vilified in certain media streams, 
like the idea of the anarchist jurisdiction in Portland is like selling t-shirts, right? Like nobody thinks of that as a negative thing here. It's hilarious, right? It's like, it's an opportunity for a new postcard to send back to your friends in California or whatever, right? So that's not hurting us right, <laughs> right now. You know, I think that the question of like whether or not we're portrayed as being inherently violent is a much more interesting and useful one. And I think that that's like a place where this idea of us becoming more a part of the common sense has become crucial, right? Because, you know, there was a time where there was a lot of discussion, well, should we call ourselves anarchists? Like, should we say it in the name? Is that useful? Is it alienating, right? And now, because it has become essentially a household term, it feels to me all the more essential that we do name ourselves if we identify with anarchist ideas, just because it's important to control, again, the understanding of what that actually means, right? So that when people, you know, at your job or at your, you know, whatever, like social environments that you interact with that do not identify with the radical left, if they know that you're an anarchist and they trust you or they're friends with you in other ways, right, they have that connection, then it's more likely they're, they're going to ask, right? Like, well, what is that about? Like, what does it mean? Why are there protests downtown? Why are they always facing off with the cops, you know? So I feel like, I feel like the visibility of that has just provided more opportunity for those ideas to come out and also has created a mandate for us to continue to engage in like the educational aspect of what these things really mean. I mean, another thing that has come from this moment is the fact that there was a hot second a couple of years ago, a year ago, when suddenly police abolition was, you know, on the front of the New York Times. And I feel like anarchists have been like trying to have this conversation for decades. And suddenly it was like just some, it was part of, you know, the cultural moment, right? The zeitgeist was, oh, is abolition a thing? Is that valuable? Is it worth talking about? And suddenly it was, right? And anarchists are like, hey, we have some ideas about this we'd like to share, right? And so I think being poised for those moments has been an important piece of it too. Yeah, I was gonna say that I, I think that, I remember a class that my, my co-director of the Inari's project, uh, Tony Vogt and I, we taught a class in 2012 that was uh, the political philosophy of, of Occupy Wall Street. And we had this conversation in our class one time where someone was arguing, a student was saying, yeah, you know, anarchism really needs to change its name because it's, it's such a loaded term for a really sort of beautiful political philosophy, but you're never gonna get off the ground with that name because it has so many negative connotations. And we were trying to sort of like unpack all of that. Uh, and I think you're right that that's, uh, we're at a different moment than we were even in 2011, 2012 with all of that. Um, Chuck, what do you think about uh, where we are today with anarchist potential? Sure. Um, okay, I thought about this. As my relationship to um, anarchism has changed over the years, my, my changing relationship to anarchism over the years parallels um, changes in anarchism's relationship to the broader social context. In, in other words, it, it evolved and it goes through ebbs and flows. Um, you know, I, I think the last 25 or let's say 40 years has been a, a relative high point um, uh, for the anarchist movement. And we're able to enjoy the consequences of the work that we've all done over those years, the results of the, the work that we've all done over the years. However, I'm of the opinion that that window is, has now closed. Um, I don't see certainly anarchist activity and valuable and important anarchist activity with the Institute for Anarchist Studies and other projects continues, no question. Um, but I don't see the level of creativity um, and, and that I believed I observed in the 90s and the um, 2000s when um, people were opening bookstores and starting publishing projects, um, when people were initiating campaigns and building organizations and um, when the anarchist world seemed to be explode, uh, exploding. Um, my sense is that this has um, window has closed and that doesn't disturb me um, in the slightest. You know, history goes through ebbs and flows. Um, that's what happens. The, the, the challenge, what preoccupies me is how to respond to that. Um, because I think, um, you know, when a political tendency like the Rep, that it, that what, like what is represented by anarchism when its relationship to broader social currents changes it's very important to recognize that and, and respond accordingly and to pivot accordingly um 
Over the course of the history of the anarchist tradition, now more than 150 years, um, anarchists have typically done one of two things. Um, the, the first impulse is to be to celebrate the past. Um, and I, you know, to, to celebrate the Spanish Civil War and to, you know, uphold the contributions of the martyrs of yesteryear. And I say this as somebody that spent years translating a fucking massive biography of Buenaventura de Rudy. So, you know, when it comes to celebrating the past, I feel like I, <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Um, but I don't think that that is really the best impulse. Um, nostalgia tends to be pretty conservative. Um, you know, when you're invest in, invested in the past, you're not building the future. Um, you know, it's kind of an either or thing. Um, I, I think the other way that anarchists have responded over the years is by, by, by looking at failures and shortcomings that the earlier generations of anarchists, um, that, that looking, I trying to identify their failures and shortcomings. And I think that that is the right thing to try to do. And people that do that are often considered ungenerous. And, and that may be true, you know, it may be true. But the point of a revolutionary movement is to build the soul, is to make a revolution. And anything short of that is by definition a shortcoming. So it's very important to assess shortcomings and to acknowledge them as such, even if that is ungenerous. Um, I'll just say just two things to finish on this thread is that, um, you know, my hope is that the next generation of anarchists, two things. As somebody who's been around for 40 years or so, I hope that the next generation is kind to their, their forebearers. You know, maybe if they feel a little bit of nostalgia, I'll be okay with that because, you know, now that I'm an old man, I wouldn't mind being remembered kindly. But, um, but fundamentally, um, I think that the right approach is to be, to be, to be critical and, 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 and ruthless with our past and to identify shortcomings and to correct them and overcome them. And if that can happen, I think that the potentials that we face are tremendous. You know, the things that we built over the last 25 or 40 years or whatever it is, will be nothing more than a preface um, to the things that we can build in the future. I, I sincerely believe that. But I think that the, our capacity to do that rests fundamentally on our, our ability to be critical about the, uh, about the past. So we really should mark 25 years at the Institute for Anarchist Studies. I, I love doing it. I sincerely love doing it. But we should be as critical as we can with the, everything that we've inherited, not just in the anarchist scene, but in society generally. If I may, Chuck, let me ask you a question about some of that. So, you know, I know in some of your writings that you've done for the Inares project, and then, you know, what you've said today before, there's, you know, there are some tendencies that you have criticized before, of course, one that, you know, you've said today, primitivism, and then um, another sort of trend that you said you've seen in um, uh, the anarchist scene, which is sort of the insurrectionist kind of smashy, smashy tendencies. I know that you're very critical of that kind of stuff. Um, what is it that you find, if anything, right now, promising in the anarchist scene that you think really needs to be nurtured and developed? You know, that I, generally speaking, and I feel like I'm building off what Laura said, um, in this, although I may be going in a different direction, um, I feel like many of the insights that the anarchist movement brings to the political discussion have now become part of the common, um, common political discourse. So um, the anarchist scene, I think, can no longer claim ownership over, say, ideas like abolishing the police, ideas about building an anti-statist alternative. And I think that that's awesome. Um, I think that the anarchist movement has created a context in which these things have been formulated can be formulated, but my impulse is that um, these ideas are no longer specifically understood as anarchist. And I think that that is great. Um, so I tend to be more invested in those broader social trends, which I believe are radical, um, than I do the anarchist movement per se. I, I hope that's, I, I don't mean to make, to cop out from answering the question, um, but I, I believe that there's been a transition as we have entered new realms of crisis. Is there a role for anarchists in terms of furthering that work, you think? Yes. Let me, let me turn to you, Laura, about that and, and ask. I know that you were talking just now about how you think that you're agreeing with Tuck, right? That there have been ways in which anarchist ideas have sort of 
kind of infiltrated broader social movements and become right the centerpiece of a lot of different things and created these vital mixes of abolitionist thought within Black uh, Black Lives Matter and other organizations and, and movements. I'm wondering, uh, are, there, are there ideas, strains, things within the anarchist scene here that you think that need to be nurtured and, and, and help to blossom and grow? And, and, and also into that now that since you are still with IIS, are there things that you think that IIS is doing to help further that work? Yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think one of the most exciting things that the IIS ever did was help shepherd uh, Walida Amarisha and Adrienne Marie Brown's book, um, Octavia's Brood into publication, right? Because that was a book that had they had applied to have it published through AK Press and it hadn't gone through and then they'd applied to us for a grant. And we said, well, why don't we just publish it as a book? And I think that that book, um, I think that the, the two of them had hit on a need, a really deep need in the movement, not just the anarchist movement, but just like the feeling of discontent in general. Um, because I think prior to that book, um, I mean, I'm not a scholar of this, so I, you know, I, I may not know, but it seems to me that prior to that book, it, there was still this sense that you had to basically teach yourself or go to school and get like a master's degree in social theory to truly understand what it meant to be an anarchist and how to position yourself in the movement, right? That you had to like teach yourself everything that had come before and you had to be able to jump through all of the gatekeeping and all of the language and all of the, you know, name dropping, all of the shit that is required of you as like a leftist intellectual in order to be taken seriously in any kind of theoretical conversation or terrain, right? Which is bullshit, obviously, but very, very real. Um, and what I think um, Walida and Marisha and Adrian Marie Brown did with that book was they said, no, what you have to be able to do is imagine things that do not exist at all. Right. So they took away the demand, not just I mean, I think that I think that Chuck is right and that we do have to be critical of what has come before. But to me, the kernel of anarchism that I think is the most vital, like that little you know, coal that we have to pass on is that endless sense of hopefulness. Right. This endless sense that things actually could be better. Right. And that we can transform them, that it's not something that is going to be given to us, but that we can all be agents in, a, in any given moment. Right. And that there's a collectivity to that. We can choose to relate in that fashion, but it requires us to imagine things, you know. And so now we're in this this place where I think the most important thing that we can possibly do is come up with visions of a world that extend past capitalism that are, enable us to have social relations that will create equity and that can like maybe not even destroy, but just ignore, leave behind the structures that we have inherited. Right. And then think past that in some grander way. And so I think this idea of being able to hand things over to imagination and trust that by enacting these certain kinds of relations with one another that we like, I, I feel like we are, um, it's kind of like in this, in the way that, um, you know, we are digital immigrants, but my child is a native, right? Like we will never really understand technology in the way that children now will understand digital technology, right? Like it's like we are learning it, but they are native to it. And so I think that we have to understand that where we are in the movement, we will never like truly embody the kinds of things that we dream of because we've got too much baggage from the past. We've got too much shit that we're carrying with us and that we're replicating, you know, in all of our interactions, no matter how we try to liberate ourselves from it. But by committing to those processes and that moving forward, there are people after us and like with us now who are envisioning other ways out of this shit, right? And that, um, that what anarchism can offer is a commitment to, if we get those relations right, right? Something else will happen. We don't control what will happen. We control, you know, the ways in which we make decisions to relate to one another. And out of that comes something different, right? Something that is better than this. Um, and I feel like it's that, that hope for that, that feels like the most important anarchist legacy that I can think of. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think that, you know, in so much anarchist literature, historically, that sort of vision of, of, of people being like, you know, as anarchists being agents of hope 
and a possibility is something that's always really been there. And it's always interesting to me how anarchists are portrayed in the sort of wider culture as uh, the, the radical extremists involved in hate and, and you know, and the, the violence and the smashy smashy. Uh, but uh, perhaps it is because that anarchism at its core is about hope and possibility that it gets so vilified in society because that's a, that kind of stand toward the future is really a, a dangerous place to be for the status quo and the folks that want to keep exploitation and oppression going. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and even if they don't, right, like that, there's still the privilege, like, oh, well, but maybe what I have is better than what will come later. Right. And there's the fear that comes with that. Right. I mean, I feel like that is another way in which privilege manifests is this idea of, well, maybe I don't have to change. Right. Like maybe what I have is better. Well, let me let me just uh, start to wrap this up together with both of you in this kind of question. And this is and, and if you don't have an answer to this, that's OK. Uh, I, I, uh, but I w- I've been struck with a conversation that I had with a former uh, IAS board member, Chris Dixon, and he's really emphasizing the idea now that we need to have sort of intergenerational organizing. Uh, we really need to talk about how different generations of activists and organizers can learn from one another. So not just in the transmission of wisdom from, from the olds, but also like how can the olds sort of learn from the political realities that uh, youth are witnessing. Um, so in that kind of spirit, I'm wondering what what's from experience from the position of experienced anarchist organizers for both of you what's the what's the wisdom that you would like to pass on to newer generations of folks who are intrigued by anarchism if there's like wisdom that you could pass on from your experience of years of being an anarchist what what would you like people to take with them um i mean i don't think that i have any particular wisdom. I think I have a lot of like wishes for people, you know, like I, I, I've seen a lot of people get radicalized really fast in different moments, right? And then try to jump into organizing and expect things to change really quickly, like just as quickly as their heart changed, right? And I think that um, when people really come face to face with the enormity of what intersectional struggle really entails um, and how it's it's difficult in ways that you never imagined, right? It's difficult not just in like addressing power, but it's difficult in meetings and it's difficult in being tired and it's difficult in like arguing with people that you really respect. And it's like difficult, like, like staying committed when what you really want to do is spend time making art or hanging out with your friends or whatever. Like, I feel like it challenges you in ways that um, you were not always prepared for. And the change can be so incremental as to be invisible. And that that is really, it can be incredibly demotivating. And I've seen people bounce off of that experience time and again of being like, well, I guess it didn't work. You know, I guess change is impossible. Or I guess the left sucks, you know, and and maybe that's true too, right? Um, Or, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this is bullshit and we should all just take care of ourselves, right? I mean, I I see people coming to these realizations over and over again. And um, I, my wish for new organizers is that they have whatever that little like glow or seed of energy is that will help them persist because I think it is really only through the longevity, that long-term commitment and and in the kinds of things that one discovers in doing that kind of long-term commitment, which looks more like care and looks more like ease and looks more like, you know, we have a joke in the IS about embrace the pace. Like when things happen really slowly, that's just how it's gonna happen sometimes. Um, so I just hope that people can learn to think of ourselves as part of a long continuity, as part of a tradition, and resist this um, the sense of urgency that we all feel can cause us to require things to happen at the speed of this moment, you know, and that sometimes we just have to have faith 
that the work that we do matters and that it is creating changes that we may not even live to see, right? Like giving, um, giving ourselves over to being part of that project in a larger way, I think. Yeah, I think uh, the Zapatistas call that, right? You call it uh, embrace the, the pace. I think I've heard the Zapatistas refer to that as the, uh, the speed of democracy. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Well, um, uh, thank you both for your time and helping us to understand a little bit about uh, the Institute for Anarchist Studies now in its 25th anniversary uh, and uh, uh, where this has come from. I really want to uh, uh, appreciate your work that you've done in helping to create a space for the, the culmin, you know, that's, that's a, a fermenting place. Uh, a place that nurtures these ideas and a place that helps spread them for other folks to 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 enjoy and to share uh, and to grow with. So uh, thank you both for your work and thank you for being here with us. Thanks so much awesome. for having us, Joseph. Check it's so good to see you. So nice to see you too. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> all right, and thank you all for turning in with us today to uh, talk about the 25th anniversary of the Institute for Anarchist Studies. If you have any questions or thoughts, please go ahead and leave them down in the comments for us. You can reach us at the Anaris Project uh, at anarisproject.org. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can also listen to our audio podcast on Anchor FM, Spotify. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks once again, and I uh, uh, hope to hear from you all soon.